Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Tonight's reading is, uh, we've just got the one from John chapter 3, starting at verse 16. If you have a um, red pew Bible near you, it starts 64. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Now a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified, here he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks about earthly things. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, yet no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted his testimony has certified this, that God is true. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good to be with you again tonight, and um, looking very much forward to sharing uh, this uh, sermon with you, and then this coming series. Just one thing to slightly clarify: uh, it was great to welcome Gab, uh, and in particular uh, his sassiness. Uh, what I do want to just make clear, though, is that we've not poached him from St. Bede's, so that he's still doing all his full role at St. Bede's and here at uh, CCRW as well. So um, just, to, just in case that was not quite clear, he's, he's still doing that, children's and youth ministry at St. Bede's, uh, a couple of days a week, and then this uh, church planning residency uh, here at CCRW, which in due course will all become the one same thing. And that's part of a kind of a, also another element, I think, of our own growing uh, sense and of ourselves as a church, which is to um, be really clear on um, uh, walking alongside and, and taking very concrete steps with people uh, towards whatever vocation God has uh, given to them, uh, whether that be in the broader context of, of the, the world in whatever sense that might be, uh, or in Christian ministry. And uh, so um, we want to be much more intentional about that, and there's a whole bunch of things uh, that go along with that, um, and the, the residency is just is one of those. So there you go, a little ad from me. Uh, here's something that Jesus said. Uh, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I just think it's one of the great joys of being a Christian 
to have a foundation for your life in the truth. We have the words of Jesus, the word of Jesus, uh, one in whom, as the Apostle Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, you, You may know all those questions that God puts to Job to show him just how small Job really was. Were you there when I did that? Do you know how that works? You're able to do these things? Well, the answer Jesus gives to all those questions is, yep, actually, I was. I do, I can. And we have his word. We have that truth and we revel in the truth and we rest in the truth and we've staked our lives on the truth. We make our decisions in line with that truth. We order our values according to that truth and we settle our loves on the basis of that truth. And the beautiful promise of Jesus is the truth, this truth, his truth, the truth of his word will set you free. Freedom in your life. And sometimes it doesn't quite feel like that, does it? Sometimes that's not exactly our experience. Sometimes we don't find the truth of Jesus an experience of freedom. And I suspect that's the intersection of at least two things. On the one hand, there's the culture around us. Uh, In days gone by when the culture was formed by Christian teaching or some civic version of that, uh, it was more likely that our feelings and experience lined up more or less with what Jesus Uh, says it was to be an experience of freedom. But as we as a culture drift further and further from those Christendom days, the the feelings, the experiences, the the water cooler conversation, the kids' sports sideline chats, the mother's group, the Friday afternoon post-works drinks, you know what? They, They often just don't feel nearly so good anymore. And the Christian truth, the truth of Jesus' word, can feel like an experience of slavery, or drudgery, or even terror. And the second thing that erodes the freedom-enhancing experience of Jesus' truth is our own immediate experience, especially of others I love or loathe. Uh, You talk about heaven and hell, and that raises the prospect that my kids or my siblings or my parents end up in hell. You've got to be kidding, seriously? Jesus said that he would build his church and then I see some of the people in the church and they feel so utterly alien to me that I just don't want anything to do with them. Scomo. My gay friends are a whole lot kinder, more generous and more aligned to my values than some of the church people I know and you want me to judge their sexuality is wrong when it's pretty obvious that love is love? Can't go there. Now, it's important to see that what's operating right here, at least in part, is a very deep issue, one that's almost entirely hidden but is incredibly powerful, and that is that the most significant determinant of what we've come to see as true and good and beautiful in our culture is what comes from within ourselves. My experience, including my experience of other people, my experience defines my reality which actually just is reality. And no one is allowed to mess with that. Now, there's lots more to say about that one. We're going to come back to that issue again and again and again because it's so very deep uh, in the ether at the moment. It's one of the big ones. But, but when this is the case, when the, when the culture has drifted from its Christian foundations and when our experience is complicated and they intersect to make the truth of Jesus not seem very freeing, well, then a number of things can happen. Uh, On the one hand, some people just double down. Some people just double down. I think this often goes with a personality type. Uh, It's a kind of belligerent, contrarian, quite likes to be the person with the obnoxious view sort of individual. Uh, After the morning congregation service, there was um, suggestions as to who such people might be. Uh, this, This sort of person really accentuates and highlights the sharp and pointy bits of gospel truth and enjoys the shock and even dismay of those around her or him. So you can double down. 
But I don't think there are that many belligerent contrarians around, at least not in the inner West, and so there's the opposite extreme. Rather than side with Jesus against the culture and experience, the second response sides with the culture and experience against Jesus. Sure, the truth will set you free, and if what you experience is not found to you to be freeing, then what you're believing mustn't be the truth. And so what you have to do is you have to slice and dice and shave and trim and make sure that the truth that you believe lines up with the culture and with your experience. Now, now the fact is that conflict sometimes just is the way things are. Conflict between what Jesus says and the culture and our experience. Given that one of the presuppositions of gospel truth is that human beings have gotten things messed up, uh, we call that the doctrine of sin, which theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once famously called the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. We mess things up. It's hardly surprising that gospel truth and human culture and experience would come into conflict. The gospel has been reforming cultures and experience since the very beginning. Whether in regards to the intrinsic value and dignity of people, human beings, so that the evil of slavery or racism is called out, or the fact that God sees all the evils of the world and so there's no place for private vengeance and blood feuds and so many others, here the gospel comes right into conflict with culture and experience and reforms it. That Those points that human beings have equal dignity as made in the image of God, that God sees evil and will take care of it, meaning that you can't do private vengeance, they're not obvious in many cultures of our world. They're hard-fought gospel victories for us. There will be times when gospel truth will be in conflict with cultural norms and personal experience, and thank God for that. Thank God for that. But at the same time, it's possible to overstate the conflict, either between gospel truth and culture, or between gospel truth and our own experience. And there are a couple of ways that we can do that. One is to take a truth and so focus on it that it becomes a half-truth, since it's lost its context. And as Benjamin Franklin observed, a half-truth is often a great lie. Another way is to take a gospel truth and to trace it all the way to its logical conclusion, including its behavioural conclusion, but in such a way that it actually becomes distorted and morphs into its own untruth. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to do some significant work together. We're going to take the time to identify some of the areas that are most important to the gospel and or most important to our culture and our experience and seek under the word of Jesus to discern the truth that does in fact set us free. We've called the series Unlearning Untruths, as Richard mentioned, because our focus is more on self-correction and self-criticism rather than correcting or criticising others. And because as well as there being culture in the world around us, there can also be such a thing as Christian culture or church culture, and that can at times be as distorting as anything else in the world, we need to do this work. And as we do it, there are a number of uh, kinds of people to keep in mind. Firstly, there's uh, what I suspect is most of us uh, for whom this series will really be a recap series in which there might not be that much that's new, but which hopefully clarifies and deepens and rejoices in the word of Jesus that sets us free. Getting sharper and clearer is always a good thing, and at the same time, it will also function as a preventative series designed to help us not, if I can put it like this, overbelieve. Believe things that are more than or by being half-truths are less than the word of Jesus. But second, there are those for whom uh, these issues that we're going to talk about can be very live issues, right in the middle of a struggle to hold on to them, to hold on to what for them has become not freeing, not joy-filled, not life-giving truth, but fraught and difficult and awkward and even painful. Some people who are doing this struggle are still in churches. Some people have left. But you may well know someone who's going through exactly this moment, what uh, some have called deconstructing their faith. The problem, of course, with deconstruction is that if that's all you do, pretty much all you've got left after a while is spiritual scorched earth. And what's needed is something constructive at the same time. And that's exactly what we're praying this series will do. Now, we're going to look at some pretty important topics. We begin uh, tonight with a question of what's come to be called heaven and hell, uh, the judgment of God, and in particular the negative judgment of God when it's difficult, 
uh, not on Hitler or Pol Pot, that's pretty easy, we're all pretty happy about them, uh, but on people who say, haven't heard about Jesus, or your mum or your dad, or your sister or your brother. Next week, we're going to look at the question of the church and other Christians, particularly when we find those Christians or the institutional church difficult or draining or even dreadful. Following that, we're going to dig into the texture of godliness and the way that Jesus, uh, way of, the way of life that Jesus sets out for us and see how that can be a truth which sets us free. And we're going to use as a case study what has been uh, come to be known as purity culture. And after that, we're going to come to two seriously hot-button topics, gender and sexuality, and then finally the whole gospel truth of the atonement and how it is that it makes sense to say that Jesus died for us and why atonement is not immoral. And in each case, the goal is simple. It's to drain the bathwater, but not to throw out the baby. To drain the bathwater, but not to throw out the baby. We want to neither subtract from nor add to the gospel the word of Jesus because it is Jesus' word that is the truth. And it is only the truth, it's only his word, that will ever give you freedom in your life. And so jumping right in at the deep end, here we go, you ready? Heaven and hell. Uh, One of the fundamental sets of questions that uh, any worldview or any religion, any person actually, any thinking human being who actually has their eyes open and pays any attention to the world has to deal with is the cluster of issues around evil. One important element of that is where did evil come from? Turns out that's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. We're not going to get into it now. We may get to it later in the series. But there's another question around evil which presses, not so much where it came from, which can be a bit abstract, but where it's going to. What will happen to it, and in particular, what will happen to evildoers? This picks up on the universal yearning for justice, that those who do evil simply won't get away with it, but in fact, justice will prevail. And and what I'm saying is that every worldview, every religion, every person has to have some kind of response to that question. Atheism has this response. This is uh, the classic words of Celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins, awesome biologist, terrible philosopher, and here's what he wrote. He said, in a universal of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe, Dawkins says, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, No good, nothing but pitiless indifference. The war in the Ukraine, the scourge of domestic violence we prayed for tonight, you know what Dawkins, what atheists have to say about that? That's what they've got to say about it. Nothing. It's utterly unlivable. That's why most atheists are almost always hypocritical because they say this and then they live like there are things like values and justice. Alternatively, you might believe in karma. Karma is another one of the great worldview options in how to respond to the question of what happens to evil. Karma holds that via reincarnation, people receive in the next life the justice that they avoided in this life. And that might be fine looking forward. Right? That might be fine looking forward, that, that you say that, that person who's persecuted you and, and oppressed you and damaged you that they, they, and is laughing in your face, that in the next life they'll get it. They'll get their justice. And that can be satisfying. Looking forward, it's okay, but looking backwards, well, let me tell you about looking backwards. It means you have to say, for example, about my friend's baby who was born with Down syndrome severely impacted by that, multiple heart operations in her first five years and eventually died at the age of six. You know what you've got to say about that on the karma? Good. That's a good thing. Because she's just getting what she deserved from a previous life. Which, of course, is not only unlivable, it's monstrous. So do you have an answer? What's your, I mean, what do you do? What do you do with 
the question of evil? What's your actual answer to it in your heart, in your soul, in your substance? Well, here's the truth that sets us free, and that is that there is a living and true, good and just God of the universe who will judge the living and the dead. And the outcomes of that judgment are what we've come to call heaven and hell. Not, not great language. The Bible uses those words slightly differently, but they communicate more or less, and so we're going to use them tonight. Heaven and hell, perhaps one of the most well-known and deeply hated parts of the Christian faith. And I put the introduction to this topic in its proper broader context of the bigger question of what happens to evil to show that the doctrine of judgment is one of the very limited range of answers to what is a very pressing problem. And at the same time, it's precisely that which causes us problems. The problems come about because the gospel teaches us two things about this judgment and in particular, the basis of God's judgment. On the one hand, the basis of God's judgment is moral. And at the same time, the basis of God's judgment is personal or relational. And the most important thing in relation to the judgment of God and the whole question of heaven and hell is to keep hold of both of those things at the same time, all the time. And when it goes wrong for you, it's because you've let go of one or other of them. Let me unpack that for a little bit. On the one hand, the base of God's judgment is moral. Of course, that makes sense. Judgment must also be, or must always be moral. That is based on what a person does and whether they've done right or wrong. And the gospel teaches us that God is supremely moral, or the Bible's word for that is that he is holy, that his character is without any moral defect or lack whatsoever, that he burns with bright, fierce, fire at moral evil and that he especially hates the abuse of power against vulnerable and defenseless people and that the wicked will not prosper. God's judgment's based on what's right and wrong. And it's not difficult to cheer at that, is it? Yeah, come on! At least for the first few seconds until you ask the question, uh, actually, I, I, I thought... Um, how moral? How holy is holy? Uh, surely God doesn't mind a little bit of grey here and there. After all, and this is the sort of the mantra of our age, ready? This is a great moral depth to which we... No one is perfect. And the reason for asking that question is obvious. When the level of the moral bar is set, we're pretty heavily invested in making sure that it's just below me. But, of course, when you think about that, we all know what that's called. It's pretty much the same as setting yourself up for a highly paid job in New York before you've even left office here in Sydney. Right? You just can't do that. That's reading the game. Which leads into the second basis of judgment, which is that it's not only moral, but it's personal. It's relational. Based on relationship. This is most famously expressed in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus speaks about those who are incredibly moral, I don't know if you realise this, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement about people who are unbelievably ethically pure. They have a, a morality, a, a moral and intensity, an ethical purity that's way above ours. Really awesomely upright. And at the end of it, Jesus sums up his, what's going to happen to them, the judgment that we rendered about them. Do you remember when he says, because they have no inherent love of or relationship with him, he says to them, depart from me for I never knew you. The Bible says God's judgment is based on holding both the moral and the personal or relational together as the basis of God's judgment at the same time, all of the time. Can you see what's crucial to hold them together? Let's just do the thought experiment then and separate them out. Morality without the personal relationship side of things, becomes what Harvard University professor Michael Sandel has called in the title of his book, The Tyranny of Merit. The Tyranny of Merit. The simple and impersonal calculation of worthiness. Um, we, we, you've got to think about this for a little bit because what that ends up meaning is that that means that only the strong Make it at work. It's a spirituality 
of the strong, of those who can measure up. There's a standard. doesn't matter where the standard is, actually. There's a standard, and, and strong people can measure up to the standard, and so they meet the standard, and that's all there is to it. And if you fall beneath the standard, then too bad. Now, it turns out that almost all people, whether religious or secular, who believe in any kind of afterlife apart from Christians hold this view. They hold the moral without the personal view. If the standard's met, all well and good. If the standard's not met, then you don't have grounds for complaint. And what, you, what you've got to see here is that there is absolutely no room for grace. This is only okay for strong people. But of course, there's a problem with this. When the standard is the holiness of God, that leads to an inevitable outcome for everyone. And because that's unthinkable, the temptation is to go to the other extreme and say the standard's actually very, very low. And like I say, apart from Hitler and Pol Pot, who we're pretty happy to see consigned to hell, everyone is saved. Do the, do the moral without the personal and you get into a mess. On the other hand, doing the personal without the moral drifts into a kind of mere favouritism at best and outright corruption at worst. Personal relationship without an ethical standard alongside it leads to just corruption. Salvation, heaven, becomes the reward for those who have good old-fashioned know-who, those who have the opportunity and capacity to hear about Jesus Christ and respond to him. And of course, you go down this track and someone says, well, that's a product of where and when you were born, what you know and the ideas you have. And so at least this scenario, which a friend of mine put powerfully to me recently, imagine a young woman born in Saudi Arabia and raised a devout Muslim, but who lives a life of terrible pain and suffering and brutality. She's forcibly married off as a teenage girl and she's treated terribly by her husband, repeatedly hurt, eventually abandoned, only to become a prostitute who is ultimately murdered. And she comes before God who says to her, you know what? You haven't suffered enough in your life. You don't trust Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter that you never had a chance. Off to hell you go. All relationship, no ethical standard. You see that neither of these two approaches to judgment, the moral without the personal or the personal without the moral, has grasped the truth that will set us free. And for that, we need Jesus. Because the genius of what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3 is that the moral and the personal, the moral and the relational, belong inextricably together. That's both for God and it's for us. What I mean by that is this. For God, the moral and the personal belong together in this way. God knows us. And it's true that compared to his holiness, we stand no chance. That's not just a thin, shrill point about perfection. You don't need to know yourself very well to see that each one of us has a dark, dark side. Every one of us. There's dark stuff going on in our souls. And the point is that God takes our moral incompetence deeply personally so much so that he does something about it. When I say something, I mean the ultimately most costly and sacrificial thing. He gave his only son. That's how Jesus puts it. He gave his only son. He sent his son into the world, and for one reason, for one purpose only, not to condemn the world, no, but that the world might be saved through him. And we know what that, that giving, that sending, leads to. It leads to death on a cross. The ultimate moral reckoning, sin heaped up, and judged. And by doing that, God does not ignore the moral, but he does transcend it. By being one who cares enough to enter into it himself and stand in the breach for us. And this puts uh, to an end uh, one of the thoughts that swirls around this area, which is that God is indifferent to how judgment goes. See, if you sort of overemphasize the moral and forget the personal, what you end up saying, well, God's holy, and, 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 and as long as he's holy, then as long as justice is done, uh, he doesn't really mind which way it goes. Or you can go, you can go worse than this, actually. God's, his, his one sort of half-truth, God's character and being as such that he has to condemn sin 
That comes out of his nature and his being. But he just chooses to save and forgive. He has to condemn sin, but he might not save. Have you ever sort of gone down this path? The problem is that it's, it's all the moral, all the ethical side. It's got none of the personal side. It doesn't have God as a person in there at all. Because that's nonsense. You want to know how much God leans towards our salvation over condemnation? Do you, do you want to get even an inkling as to how much he's invested in people being in heaven rather than hell? You think he doesn't mind which way it goes? He gave his son. That's how much he minds how it goes. His heart breaks. His body bleeds. His life ebbs. Don't you even get close to thinking that God is indifferent to the outcome. No, the moral and the personal belong absolutely together in God. And at the same time, the moral and the personal belong together for us too. Um, Jesus is crystal clear that he was sent into the world to save it, not condemn it. But in the same way as the function of the sun is to cast light, but that inevitably also means causing shadows, it's also true that the coming of the sun into the world brings salvation, but also condemnation. And that's not some arbitrary moral failing on our part. What, what Jesus says is that that is deeply relationally investment, invested. One of our fears about judgment is the idea that in the end we're judged because of our mere thoughts. Um, we, we, what we know and what we believe, and therefore, of course, what we know and what we believe is deeply determined by where we're born and who our parents are, and then the whole notion of judgment becomes totally arbitrary and unfair. It's all personal, not ethical. And Jesus says, no, it's not your ideas it's not your thoughts that send you to hell, it's your sins. It's really important to get this. It's not your thoughts that will take you to hell, it's your sins. Or perhaps even more deeply, your thoughts and your sins are profoundly connected. Here's what's actually going on, Jesus says in verse 19. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, Jesus is not making some grand statement about all people at all time. The point he's making is about the terrible, tragic irony. How is it possible that the light can fail to enlighten? How does that work? And the answer is what people love. People love darkness, Jesus says. The reason why people don't come to Jesus is because they love the darkness. The ethical and the moral unite together. Sorry, the ethical and the personal. Jesus always goes to the heart, that is to our loves. And of course, you don't have to have terribly deep insight into the human heart to know that externally moral behaviour can come from deeply darkened hearts. But Jesus isn't fooled. And the darkness of our hearts, the way that we get tied up in evil deeds, in doing the wrong thing, in moral failure of whatever kind, that plays out in our response to Jesus. And what's more, Jesus won't coerce your heart. He won't force your love because love can't be forced. If love is forced, it stops being love. C.S. Lewis um, put the point that I'm trying to make to tie together the the moral and the personal in us, uh, in this way. This is how he puts it. Hell, he says, begins with, say, a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from that mood. You may even criticise it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. There will be no you left to criticise the mood or even enjoy it. Just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And so here's the, here's the conclusion that Lewis draws. He says, it's not so much a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. 
You see what Lewis is doing there? He's trying to do the same thing I'm trying to do here, which is to hold together the moral and the personal. That's why at the end of the passage, um, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And what he should say next is what? The contrast, the opposite of that, right? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What he should say is, whoever doesn't believe in the Son does not have eternal life, right? That's what he should say. Except you notice that that's not what he said. He said, whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. Not believing, that's the relational side, and not obeying, that's the ethical side, they turn out to be two sides of the same coin when it comes to Jesus. There's no arbitrariness, nor any coldness in the judgment of God. Um, okay, I'm going to pause there um, because uh, in each of the sermons we're going to have over this series, we're going to uh, open up for questions. Um, although these topics are too big, you write whole books on topics like this. Uh, and so we're going to extend each topic uh, to have unlearning untruths in the pub. Uh, not a great place for truths, so best to do some untruths in the pub. Uh, and so um, each week uh, I'm going to be down at the pub uh, that what is it, Miss Seely's at uh, in Ashfield at um, eight o'clock, uh, different days. This week coming, it's Wednesday night. And if anyone wants to come and talk further about this stuff uh, and join me at the pub, then you feel free to do that. You have to be over eighteen. Uh, and um, if no one comes, then I guess I'll um, share a drink. They call loneliness because it's better than drinking alone. That's a quote from. That got a lot of laughs in the morning. Everyone knows Billy Joel there, but anyway. Um, any questions that you want to ask about this topic of heaven and hell? Yeah, right. And, I mean, certainly you want the wrath of God taken seriously. It's right there in Jesus, isn't it? Um, in, in, um, at the end of John 3, the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, so I think Lewis is, is uh, adding one dimension uh, to the question, which, and the point that he's trying to make there is to say that uh, it's not merely relational. That is, it's not merely that God says uh, in judgment... Um, uh, Christian, yes. Non-Christian, no. Christian, yes. Non-Christian, no. It's not just in that sense. Because what that leads to then, right, is this problem of what happens to those who haven't heard, uh, what happens to people who are born for Jesus, uh, those who had no chance, those with intellectual disability, and, and so on and so on. Right? And so if it's all relational, just who's got the right ideas in their head or something like that, then, then you've got a problem. And Lewis says, here's one way to kind of think your way through that problem, which is to recognise that there's actually something going on for the person that is ethical as well. And that what Jesus does is he ties them together. He says, the, the reason people don't come to the light, personal, is because their deeds are evil, ethical. That actually the two work out together. They're not separated from each other. And we're gonna, I'm going to conclude in a moment and flip around the other way and um, show how that actually is, 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 I think, unbelievably important and helps us through the question. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm going to come to that because it's really important. Um, the answer will be it's all a product of your emotionality. And, of course, the one thing you're pretty clear about your emotionality is you've got to have one and you also shouldn't make too much of it. Some people cry a lot. Other people don't. Some people feel happy a lot. Other people don't. It's, not, you know, it's just that's at that point. Yeah. So the question, very interesting and good question, is that because human lives are like this sized, uh, but eternal death, if you like, or eternal life, are infinite, this, I mean, you know, that sized, and so how can that, in terms of punishment, ever fit a crime, so to speak, that's only this size here? Is that right? Um, uh, I would suggest, so this is what I'm trying to give you as a tool. So when I'm saying when something doesn't work, then I'm, I'm, what the suggestion I made to you is that the reason it hasn't worked is because you haven't managed to properly, at that point, integrate both the ethical and the personal or relational at the same time in relation to that particular angle on the problem. Okay? So that's what I'm going to suggest, is that what that is, is that's all moral, ethical, but not relational enough. And the way to get an answer to that question is the relational answer, which is, here I go, uh, which is to say that... Um, when we set the problem or the question up like that, we say that the, um, uh, it, it, it's kind of a mere... Um, eternal life and eternal death are a mere uh, reward or punishment for an objective wrong 
done or not done, right? Not a living relationship with the God of the universe or otherwise. And so what Jesus says is, if, if your deeds are done in darkness, if you love darkness, and so this is one of, one of uh, C.S. Lewis makes a similar kind of point when he says, in the end, either we say to God, thy will be done, like we sang earlier, or God says to us, thy will be done. If you love darkness, you know what you're going to get? Darkness. So, so in that, and that's a relational thing because Jesus is the light. And so um, the, 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 if you take the question out of its purely ethical bounds, here's, here's X units of crime, how can you get infinite units of punishment, right? That, the, the reason that the question doesn't work, like that we go, oh, how does that feel? That's terrible. Can't work. The, I'm saying the reason is that it hasn't integrated the ethical and the personal adequately. So, so I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to do is give you a tool here to go, every time you come up against it in your own heart, or every time you come up against it from someone else or for and or about someone else, the, the idea that, hold on, the judgment of God, that's not setting free. That's it's kind of crazy. It doesn't work. The, the reason will be, okay, I've got my tool now. I just need to work a little bit harder on integrating the, the ethical and the personal together. That's my suggestion to you tonight. That's what I think Jesus is doing in John 3. It's an incredibly important passage. Incredibly important passage, John chapter 3, on this topic. Yeah, sure. Really great question. And that's, remember at the beginning I said I wasn't in love with the language of heaven and hell. Uh, that's pretty Simpsons-like. And so most of us get most of our theology of hell from the Simpsons. And the way the Simpsons depict hell is that it's a place, it's down, it's hot, it's fun. And there's a dude there with a tail and a pitchfork uh, called um, uh, the devil. And the devil runs hell. And it's just a, you know, a lot of fun, right? It's all nonsense, Right? Pretty much anything you get from the Simpsons in terms of theology, I mean, the, the, the fun, laugh at the fun, but the theology, absolute nonsense. So the first thing is that um, the whole notion of, remember the reason that I situated the, uh, the discussion for tonight, this, this point tonight in, the, in the relation to the question of evil, is that the whole point of the judgment of God is that it is the great answer to the problem of evil, which is God is going to destroy all evil. Like just so that there's no every one one lovely way that an author put this was to say that every sad thing becomes untrue. Every sad thing becomes untrue. Um, that one of the pictures in Revelation is of a lake of fire. So the idea is that that's just the most single destructive thing that there can be. And what happens to the devil actually is that the devil goes into the lake of fire. There is no devil in eternal life. So so. Um, the Bible has three pictures for what happens to a negative, a, a condemnation from God. One is destruction, one is separation, and the other is anguish or torment. And I don't know how to hold those three together. Uh, they're each of them pictures or images, and the reason that they're pictures or images is that they're trying to describe something which is fundamentally non-experienced and indescribable. So I don't know, I, at this point, this is, a, this is a really great moment of saying, it's actually really important at times to say to yourself, I don't know and I can't know and I need to stop at this point. Here's what I can know and beyond this, I'm not going to go because if I do, I'll get messed up and so I'm going to come back to here with, which, with what I do know. And, and that's a big part of this series as well, actually, that there are some things that you can't know and, and one of the things that we're really bad at in our culture is going, I'm too dumb to know something. Right, because you're incredibly smart. You're a very special person. You can change the world. You can be and do anything you want. Nonsense. I mean, your school told you that to make you feel good, so that you talk about the school positively, right? But that's—it's rubbish. Uh, you are way too dumb to know some things, and I know that because I'm dumber than you. Okay, and so that we just there's a limit to what we can know. And that's okay. That's part of where we're going to end as well. And on this one, I think, we see... Uh, that's why the apostle... I use the word dumb only because it's provocative. The apostle's much nicer. He says, we see through a mirror dimly. You see, it's at this... But, but then we'll see clearly. Or another way he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. 
All right, let me, let me wind this up. Uh, we've gone long, and uh, it's not surprising that a topic like this will take us long, and this was shorter than this morning, so you've got to be pleased about that. Three core things to hold on to. I want to say that whenever God judges, it's really important that you hold on to this idea that when God judges and however the judgment turns out for any individual, the single most significant thing you know with absolute certainty is that while God is absolutely never less than fair, right, he's never less than moral about the judgment, the judgment will never be unfair on someone. It will always take into account the moral situation. God will never be less than fair. Sometimes, in fact, he is, in fact, always more than fair. There is a great lurking fear about this topic that God is unfair. He's pure and he's holy, sure, but he's horrible with it. And that even we feeble and compromised people can often enough know how not to be jerks, but the doctrine of God's judgment commits us to rendering God as a jerk and we know that God's not a jerk and so some people draw the conclusion we have to ditch judgment. And what I want to suggest that you do is to look through the issue at the other end of the telescope. Trust God, don't judge God. Don't apply your standards of fairness to judge whether God measures up. Trust God even in his judgment and allow him to judge even your standards of fairness. And I want to say, you you might ask the question, how can I trust God that much? Well, you have good reason to, you know enough about God in Jesus Christ to know that if it's the case that someone is condemned by Jesus, then it's not because he was indifferent. It's not because they were simply born in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know enough to know that God holds together the moral basis for judgment and the personal basis for judgment in such a way that no one will be unsatisfied. And so I said this to parents this morning about their children. I'll say it to you tonight about your parents or your siblings, your friends. You have to trust God with the people that you love. You have to trust God with the people that you love. Uh, you do it all the time, actually. Every time they walk out the house, you don't know that they're going to come back, right? But you've got to trust him, not just whether they come home tonight, but with their eternity as well. No one loves your loved ones more than you do, except God. And you can trust him with them. Which leads to the second core thing to hold on to. You mustn't stand in the place of God and declare about anyone whether they are or not are not saved and going to heaven or not saved and going to hell. As though you had the wisdom and insight to determine that. That is just above our pay grade. And we mustn't go there. I might have a hope that Muslim girls who are mistreated and brutally murdered will be saved. I might have a hope that my family members who turned away from Jesus will be saved. I might even have some theories about how good and compassionate God will have compassion on such a person, but I don't have any knowledge about that. And I can't make any definitive statements about that. You've got to hold on to the reality that God is the judge and you're not and you trust him. That's what it is to believe in Jesus, to trust him, to trust him, including trusting him, to know better and to judge better than me. I do know one thing, that someone who confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That's a confidence we can have. That's a gift that's been given to us. But then it's funny, you know, I don't really know anything about anyone else's heart either. What I do know is that if judgment is in the hands of Jesus, then it's in safe hands. It's in the right hands and it's a whole lot better than if it was in your hands or certainly than if it was in my hands. Which leads to the final core thing to hold on to. God will do the right thing. You've got to trust him. And the third thing is, The kindest thing you can do for someone is to bring them to Jesus. The kindest thing you can do to someone is to bring them to Jesus, which is to bring them to the light, because all Jesus will take from them is their sins. Other than that, what he adds to them is joy and peace and forgiveness and hope and confidence. 
and especially the hope that in the end evil doesn't win, that justice will be done and with mercy, that the powerful and the oppressor won't get away with it, but that every evil deed will be brought to light. And at the same time, if I have any confidence that heaven is my destination, then it's only because of God's pure, sheer, unearned, undeserved, glorious, awesome, amazing grace. So here's the point, right? Do you get why it is that the truth of this word of Jesus sets you free? Next time you go into a conversation about judgment, heaven and hell with people, do you know why it's a freeing thing that you believe? It sets you free from fear. It sets you free from doubt. It sets you free from arrogance. It makes you bold and confident and meek and humble all at the same time because you have a God of mercy who you can trust. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we lift our hearts to you in praise and worship and we are so very, very glad that you who know us from the inside because you lived our life and you died our death, that it is you who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And, and there is so much about this topic that we don't understand. There is so much about this, uh, this reality that we have uh, confusion about or uncertainty and hopes. Um, we, we, we worry for parents and for friends and for siblings, for kids. But at the bottom of all of that, we know that we can trust you. And so we say that we do. Confirm in us your truth, which sets us free. Amen.